contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. We're presented, as always, by betonline.ag. They're your online sportsbook experts. Of course, the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet, which this podcast is part of. Use that promo code PODCAST1. You get that 50% sign-up bonus today. Betonline.ag. I'm going to give you a rant, but then we're going to get into part of the Morad Symposium that I host every year. I had a panel on gender equity and women's issues and no time more appropriate as the women's soccer team, the U.S. women's soccer team, begins the Women's World Cup. <clears throat> the guy behind that filed an EEOC action and, of course, a lawsuit against U.S. soccer for equal treatment and equal pay is Jeffrey Kessler, one of the preeminent lawyers. He was on my panel. And he was at uh, the Morat Symposium. So I'm going to play that for you in a bit so you can hear it's, the timing is perfect. Jeffrey Kessler explained the reasons for wanting equal pay for the women's national soccer team, the status of the lawsuit, the status of gender equity in Title IX regarding this. And then you'll find it very interesting with super attorney, the best player's attorney out there, Jeffrey Kessler, coming to you soon. First, a rant of the week <clears throat> comes from a TMZ article which really said, you know, Adam Silver is going to be looking to not use the term owner for players. Now, that thought found that interesting. Again, TMZ, take it for what you will, but it really struck me because having been around NFL meetings, NFL owners for so long, it really struck me early on, and I guess throughout my 10 years in the NFL, why are we calling these people owners? More than that, though, why are we calling them Mr.? You know, why am I a man, hopefully respected, having to refer to another man as Mr. when I'm referred to by my first name? I know the arguments out there, oh, he's made so much money, he's done this, he's senior, whatever. The seniority thing, fine. The respect for elders, yes. I can say Mr. when I meet someone that's older and accomplished and I haven't met before, but I don't get it. For ownership, and I think it, it is a little paternalistic. I'm not saying it's anything about plantation like some of these people are trying to point out with ownership, although I understand that. My issue to me is what's going on when we talk about Mr. and this respect and names like that? Because one thing that's interesting to me is that these, these titles are kind of weird. You know what I mean? It's kind of like you call people Mr., you call people Coach. And something I never really did at the Packers, whether it was Coach Rhodes, Coach Sherman, Coach McCarthy, I just called them by their name. I called them Mike. I didn't expect them to call me uh, contract negotiator Brandt or cap manager Brandt. You know, again, these titles, it's, it's just sort of, listen, we're all in this together, especially from a team point of view. And this idea of, oh, he's an owner. You know, again, now I'm biased because I went worked for the one franchise in the NFL that did not have an owner. But, again, I don't get this whole idea of, well, you know, they got to be called Mr., they're owners, there's this respect. You know, I call them by their first name, and maybe if they look down at me, especially owners, like, why is he calling by a first name? I'll deal with that. And sometimes it applies even to settings outside of their profession. 
I'll share a story that I heard. I grew up born and raised in Washington, D.C., about the same age as the Redskins owner, Dan Snyder. Didn't call him Mr., but good friend of mine had kids that played with Dan Snyder's kids. So this story just sort of struck me. One time my friend tells me he got home, I'm sorry, he got to Snyder's home to pick up his little girls who were playing with Snyder's little girls. And he hadn't met Dan Snyder. Dan Snyder came in, sort of exchanged pleasantries and something like my friend saying, thanks for hosting my girls, appreciate it, Dan. And Dan Snyder said to my friend, who he'd never met before, that's Mr. Snyder. Now, again, said this to a, a guy in his late 40s, like, that's Mr. S- you know, you're calling me Mr. Snyder. Like, I'm thinking, as he thought, what kind of person does that? I mean, what is that? So, again, I was a little struck when I heard this report, whether TMZ or whoever, that's saying the NF- NBA, which always is the most progressive on these things, saying they don't really want to deal with the word owner anymore. They're looking at it a different way. Now, people will scoff at that. People will say, what is this? And they'll talk about this plantation and back and forth. But to me, on a bigger picture, listen, we're all people. (laughs) There's none of this Mr. Needed. I just never thought that, and it really struck me in that way. That's my rant of the week. Right now, I want to get to this panel. And again, I'm coming to you. I'm actually at a gambling conference on the shores of the Pacific Ocean. It's beautiful out here, Half Moon Bay, the International Association of Gaming Advisors speaking later today, but it just struck me. I'm reading a lot about the UN's women's national team, ESPN magazine, Sports Illustrated magazine, Time magazine. It's all about them. And mentioned in every article is this lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation and the revenues they produce and the TV ratings they produce and how much more popular they are than the men's side. So it's a perfect time to play The panel from the symposium with Jeffrey Kessler, the preeminent voice in player rights from a player's point of view, represents NBA players and NFL players, Tom Brady case, all these cases that you know about, but this specifically about the U.S. women's soccer team. So without further ado, recorded in April at the Morad Symposium, which I host at Villanova, a panel with me interviewing specifically the man who has sued the U.S. soccer on behalf of the U.S. women's soccer team, Jeffrey Kessler. Jeff, was the recent U.S. women's soccer action by you, first with the EOC in 2016, was that your first foray into this issue on the player front with the equal opportunity, the gender part of it? As terms of filing a lawsuit, yes. Uh, But actually... um, when the women's tennis players were working to get equal prize money uh, in the four slams uh, and in the uh, highest level of the WTA events, uh, we were actually counseling them uh, on those efforts as well. So that was probably my first foray uh, into trying to get uh, equal uh, pay. Uh, But the... uh, Women's soccer team yeah. uh, is the first lawsuit. So I've take us inside the, the actions, first the EEOC action, now the litigation on behalf of the women's soccer team. How did you get involved? Yes. So this went back to 
the women were doing a new collective bargaining agreement. And at that time, this was several years ago, uh, we were retained, as we often are on the player side, to give advice. And the first thing we do is we look at the facts, the underlying facts, the economics of the industry, how they were being treated. And it immediately occurred to us that this was a violation of both Title VII and the Equal Pay Act. Because... Because uh, why? And you don't often have this precise set of circumstances that present themselves in sports. And the reason is, to state a legal claim under those statutes, you need a common employer. Well, in most of these sports, there is not a common employer for the male and female athletes. Here there was. Uh, It was the United States Soccer Federation uh, has a national team for men and a national team for women, and they all enter into employment agreements with those teams. In fact, there was a union for both the men and the women, uh, different unions who were negotiating. And so it set itself up where you had male and female athletes who were doing essentially the same job. Uh, And the main two differences were that the women's team was phenomenally successful and the men's team was not. Uh, and if you looked at <laughs> Spoken it... Spoken like their lawyer. Uh, if, <laughs> I mean, the facts are the facts. And, and, the, uh, and on a revenue basis, the women's team was much more profitable for the United States Soccer Federation than when the men's team. So you didn't have some of the issues you could get into you know, in other sports where the men's teams are just generating much more money. That was not the case with the women's team. Yet, they were making 70% or less than what the men's team was making. So, like, what's up with that? What's up with that is discrimination. Okay? It's very much a reflection of what we've just heard about. It's a national issue. It's not a sports issue. Uh, But the women on this team, who are phenomenal athletes and are phenomenal leaders, said we're going to stand up and do something about it, not just for themselves, but really as an example to try to use sports, as it often can be, uh, as a positive example for the world in terms of that. So they started this struggle with an EEOC complaint a few years ago. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, the EEOC uh, is not the most active body in the world uh, these days. And so the investigation continued and continued and continued. Uh, and finally, the women said... Was there said, any way you could prod that along as the attorney? Or uh, that we prodded as much as we can, and there were efforts to try to mediate a settlement. Uh, but all of that went nowhere. And finally, the women said, enough is enough. Uh, they were going to file their own lawsuit. And every single member of the current team joined in as an individual plaintiff. So while it is also a class action for the players who came previously, uh, going back to the statute of limitations, uh, each member of the team wanted to individually join to show their unity on this issue. You represent a lot of men's organizations. Is it different representing women's organizations? No, in fact, the male athletes have been tremendously supportive of the women on this. The men's national team said they hope the women get every penny 
and they deserve it. Many of the players have spoken out about that. Um, I see some other athletes from the various sports I'm involved in, whether it's the NBA or the NFL. All of those athletes have said right on, you know, go get that money uh, for the women as well. They deserve it. So there's been no problem there. What is the defense being offered by the U.S. Soccer Federation, why they won't pay? So they have a variety of defenses. Um, one of their defenses is they're trying to deny that, in fact, they should be treated as a common employer because there are two different teams. Um, I don't think that is legally correct, but that's one of the defenses that they've made. Um, a second defense they've made is that somehow it's okay because there was a union and the union agreed to what the women are getting in bargaining, and therefore that's some type of waiver. Um, for all of you who know the law in this area, unions cannot waive Title VII. Unions cannot waive the Equal Pay Act any more than a union could agree to waive the minimum wage laws. <laughs> of the states. Uh, those base requirements apply uh, whether or not you have a union agreement. By the way, the union want an equal pay, uh, and the only reason they didn't get it is because the USSF said no, <laughs> and they then had to decide whether to take a significant advancement, which they did get in their last deal, uh, and work, uh, or to not work at all, which they thought would be uh, more destructive their sport. So. What they concluded they would do is that they would do the best they could in collective bargaining, but then assert their legal rights, which is exactly what they are doing here. So that's a defense that's been raised. And the last one is uh, it sort of blames somebody else. So they say, well, we'd love to pay the women the same, but, you know, FIFA uh, doesn't give us the same amount of money for the World Cup for the women as they do for the men, which is true. But that has nothing to do, in our view, with what the USSF does with their money. Okay? FIFA is not in this country. I can't sue them under Title VII. <laughs> right. uh, you would if you could. The I'm Equal sure. Pay Act. But I can sue the USSF. And they are required to treat the women equally under the law, regardless as to whether the rest of the world is discriminating or not. And frankly, what, what USSF should be doing is saying, you know what, we've got the money, we are going to treat these women fairly, and let's set an example for the rest of the world. Maybe they'll come to that. We hope they'll come to that. If not, we think that eventually a jury is going to make them come to that. And what's been so impressive is your star players. Your star players have stepped up, been very vocal, been out in the media, Alex Morgan, etc. Uh, that obviously shows the passion that these women have for this. There's no question about it. They feel, look, they get letters from little girls all over the country who are so excited about them fighting for equal rights. You know, you know my, my granddaughter, who's four years old, knows they're fighting for equal rights. She doesn't understand even the issue. That's not why because would, she's your granddaughter? Yeah, you know, why, <laughs> why would women make less if they're just as good? She doesn't understand that issue. Right. You know, I don't understand that issue. I'm like her. And so this is something that has to be established and fought for. Jeff, what was talked about last panel was uh, obviously some, some financial constraints with some of the pay-for-play stuff that you're behind with the Austin case, 
due to Title IX issues. So here we are, gender equity versus pay-for-play, two issues that you're both involved with. Can you square those? Sure. Um, If Title IX applies with respect to the payments of compensation and benefits to college athletes, then I think that's great. What will be the result? The result will be that more athletes will get the compensation. And if there are financial constraints, maybe the men will get a little less and the women will then be brought up to them. And that's terrific. Okay. I don't know if Title IX requires that or not. Um, I wish it did, frankly, from, from my standpoint. The reason I don't know is because there are a lot of decisions that say you don't have to spend the same uh, on teams uh, for men and women under Title IX. So, for example, uh, I can tell you right now, uh, every major football school spends vastly more on their football team uh, than they do on all their women's sports put together, and that's not a Title IX violation. What Title IX's been held to protect is the equality of the availability of scholarships. That it's 100% protects, and it's had a dramatic example. So I'd be in favor of it applying, uh, but I don't know if it applies. But in any event, um, that'll just determine how the money uh, is shared, and I'm in favor of greater shares, not lesser shares for women. But if there, so. if, I guess the question is if there's more pay for superstars in big-time college football or basketball, it will directly affect other sports, minor men's sports, and, of course, women's sports. No, it won't. How, why Okay, not? so right now we have something called Division Three, right? Division Three has every single team. It has no major sports to support it financially. Okay. Same thing in Division 1A, or if you're in the Ivy League, okay, you have no revenue sports. Believe me, I know. I went to Columbia. Okay, <laughs> The football team does not generate money to support the other sports in those schools. Every one of those schools has every one of those sports. Why do they get supported? How? The same way that the English department gets supported. English department has no revenues either. The same way that the drama club gets supported. The drama club doesn't have maybe a little tiny bit of revenue as well. Or the school newspaper or anything else. It gets supported because for those other sports, it's part of what the colleges find valuable and offered. This whole idea that somehow the basketball and football players at the revenue sports, you know, should somehow not get anything because the rowers need it is a canard. It's just not true. It's not true in any sport that's out there. What they're actually supporting is not the rowers. They're supporting, and I'm sorry to say this, the coaches, the athletic directors, the facilities, and everything else. If you're at the University of Alabama, so, you know, the coach, instead of making $11 million, will make $7 million, and the rest will go to those athletes, 95% of which will never go to the NFL, by the way, or to the NBA out of Duke. Most of the players do not go on to professional careers. And instead, this is their one shot to try to reap some benefits out of that. And the money is going, frankly, where it shouldn't go. Which is? To the coaches, the athletic directors, facilities, 
any place else except to the people who actually generate the money. Where's that case stand? Well, we won. Uh, we had uh, a trial that took place in November, uh, and the NCA restrictions were struck down. We had requested um, two forms of adjunctive relief, the one that we really preferred, uh, and frankly, the one that we got. Uh, the one that we really preferred would have said the NCAA is just out of this business entirely, uh, and individual conferences could set their own rules and competition with each other as to how to treat their athletes in these revenue sports. And by the way, I don't expect every conference to do the same thing. If you're in the Patriot League, you may not do the same thing for your football players if you're in the SEC. Okay, that's just the reality in terms of where the money is in terms of that. It says, but the relief we did get said the NCAA can no longer regulate educational benefits. So what does that mean? Now, all the schools and conferences will be free to do as much as they want in terms of giving postgraduate education scholarships, study abroad, tutoring, computers, work-study programs, and most importantly, from my standpoint, academic achievement encouragement rewards so that they can go out, for example, and give their athletes $15,000 a year if they're making progress towards their degree and another 15000 if they get their degree. So it will encourage education. And it was very interesting to me because Mark Emmert uh, recently got interviewed, I guess, about this during the tournament, and he said he thinks comp competition to provide more value in education is a good thing. Well, now he's got it. And despite that fact, by the way, his organization is appealing that. So there's sort of a disconnect between what he said and, and what they're actually doing. And by the way, we're cross-appealing. You're appealing uh, as well. We're appealing because we still think we should get the broader relief. Which is uh, and money. Which would allow the conferences to take over all of this. And uh, we'll see what happens when we get to the Court of Appeals. What's the, sta what's the timing there? You never We're know. We're probably looking at least a year uh, before we would get a Court of Appeals uh, ruling on this. A year to a year and a half would be typical for the Ninth Circuit in terms of when we'd uh, get a final decision. And the status of the women's suit? So we're at the very early stages of the suit. Uh, right now, we're fighting about where it will be heard. So we filed our case uh, in Los Angeles, and there is another case that uh, Hope Solo had individually filed in San Francisco. The uh, USSF had moved to transfer Hope Solo's case to Chicago, where they're headquartered, because they think that they prefer to have the case heard there. Um, this is now all before what we call the multi-district litigation panel, which is a group that decides where to centralize cases when they have common issues. And so we're advocating that everything be heard in Los Angeles. Um, I assume the USSF hasn't responded yet, but I believe they're going to say Chicago. Uh, and then we'll get a decision on that. Uh, once we know what court we're in, uh, then I expect that 
There will initially be motions to dismiss filed by the USSF, um, with arguing whatever they get argued to try to say the case shouldn't go forward. Uh, we'll overcome that. Uh, and then we'll move into discovery <laughs> and a trial schedule. And um, uh, hopefully uh, within um, a year or so of that, uh, if we don't settle and get equal pay through settlement, uh, then we will go to a jury trial. And, and the we, women's like, we like our chances in front of a jury on this issue. I'm sure you do. The women's team continues to play with the gaps in pay, as we Yes. Say. Oh, their, their first goal right now is to win the World Cup this year. Of course. And uh, that's what they're focused on, and, uh, and uh, I'm hoping that's what they're going to do. Uh, and uh, that they will continue to play. They made that decision when they decided, uh, rather than strike or face a lockout uh, on collective bargaining, to take their agreement. They still feel that their sport needs to be supported, both in the U.S. and globally, and they were not willing to uh, take a disruption in play over this, especially when the legal system offered another alternative for them uh, to seek equal pay. We'll be following it. Thanks so much, Jeff Kessler. Great discussion. Really hope you enjoyed that. The preeminent voice on this U.S. women's women's soccer team lawsuit. The guy who's behind it, Jeffrey Kessler. Now, word from our sponsor, BetOnline.ag. As we approach the end of May, it's all NBA and NHL finals. It's the most exciting time of year. The champion's going to come in the next week in each. Only one place that has you covered. That's going to be betonline.ag. You've got the NBA Finals going on right now, Warriors and Raptors. NHL Finals going on right now, Blues and Bruins. Don't sit on the sidelines. Get in on the action. Use that promo code PODCAST1. See that 50% welcome bonus. NBA Finals, Stanley Cup Finals, both in mid-action this week. Don't miss out. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Well, that'll do it for another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. I really enjoy bringing you other aspects of my life, like the interview with Jeffrey Kessler. Hope you enjoyed it. It's certainly timely with what's going on now. Also, appreciate those who follow me on Twitter, at Andrew Brandt. Apple Podcasts and rankings and comments. Really appreciate if you do that. Thanks to my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at rostucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.